Hey there, friends. How's it going? My name is Kyle Devlin, and I am the host of this podcast. This is the Having a Blast podcast. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo podcast where we'll be doing a deep dive on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. If you happen to like what you hear, if you could do me a huge favor, perhaps give us a five-star review. That just really helps get the algorithms working in our favor, and then more people can hear the podcast. Or Another thing that really helps us out is if you share it with a friend. If you've got a friend that enjoys this type of music, pop punk and indie, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. friends welcome to the show today i'm excited i am speaking with a guest his name is michael hollins he is the owner and operator of tdr records they have released great vinyl records from bands like punchline they did a split with punchline and over it two of my favorite bands they've released a bunch of the promise hero stuff as well as a band that my old band game time toured with the prize fight they released one of their eps i believe it's their second ep and they recorded that with paul levitt it's a great ep as well if you want the vinyl version definitely head over to tdr records website and check it out and all the other releases they released the second full-length record from the early november so a lot of cool stuff had a lot of fun talking to michael he used to be in a band called mayfield back in the day from 2000 to 2005 and we just talk about everything he's up to these days running a record label in the year 2021 and what that looks like really fascinating look behind the scenes it was also fun reminiscing about the early 2000s touring and playing with a lot of these bands and getting to know a lot of these bands i think everybody could take something away with michael's ability to network and maintain relationships and it was really fun to talk to him about it i really appreciate his time and without further ado, my wide-ranging conversation with Mr. Michael Hollins of TDR Records. Hey, it's good. How about you? I'm trying to get my phone to turn sideways. I'm good. <laughs> there we go. I like your hoodie, man. Thanks a lot. I too yeah. like Star Wars. <laughs> I think we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff that we like today. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, that invariably is what happens on this podcast. The people that I've had on so far, I think a general theme is people are excited about things and they're enthusiastic about things. And I think I fall into that category too. So nice. Yeah. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm just working on some new stuff for our next release. Oh, cool. Hopefully that will be announced very soon, depending on when this comes out. But uh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Other than that, just living life. Awesome, dude. I wasn't quite sure how today was going to go just in general, because I actually had my second vaccine yesterday. Oh, okay. Told that the second one is the one where you might feel like crap the next day. And right. I was hell bent on ensuring that I'll trick my mind into thinking, oh, no, I'll be fine. I won't experience anything. It'll just be a sore arm. And that's it. The first shot that I had, I didn't experience any symptoms other than a sore arm the next day. And Last night around 11 o'clock, that's when it started setting in. I started getting that achy flu feeling where your whole body starts to ache a little bit. I hadn't experienced that for a long time. Oh, okay. (laughs) It's happening. Oh, wow. But then I woke up this morning and I think just sleeping 
helped a lot and I started to feel better as the day progressed. So yeah, I'm feeling awesome now. Oh, it's great. It came and went pretty quick, which I'm pretty happy about. Yeah. I'm getting my second dose in a couple of weeks. So I'm looking great. forward to seeing what happens. Awesome, man. Do you, you know which shot you had or which the vaccine? Moderna. Okay. Moderna. Cool. Yeah. I had yeah. Pfizer. That's great, man. That's so you just had your first shot. Yeah. About it was this month, earlier this month. But yeah. I'm looking forward to getting that second one and being able to go back to some kind of normalcy. Yeah, absolutely. I've been talking to a lot of my friends and they share the exact same sentiment. We don't really know what the new normal is going to be for that transition period for a few months, but I'm with you. I definitely want to get to a place where we're headed back into some semblance of normalcy. You're in Chicago, right? I am. I'm on the uh, the suburbs in Bartlett, but yeah, I just say Chicago. So it's easier for people to know where that's at. Yeah. Chicago encompasses a lot of areas. So Mike, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? How you got involved in the scene, some early bands that really resonated with you, maybe some local bands in the Chicago scene? Uh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, I would say I've been into music for a long time. I think going back back to seven or eight years old. I mean, really, I think the first thing I really remember hearing or getting like was a physical copy was like the Terminator soundtrack, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles soundtrack. And then that morphed into is where does it sounds boys to men TLC and then so that was like seven eight years old and then all of a sudden probably summer of 94 Dookie popped into my life and changed everything Mm -hmm. so you know since then it's been pretty much punk pop punk that genre the late 90s early 2000s mid 2000s that's pretty much where I'm stuck at but yeah so when I heard Dookie that changed everything loved it and wanted to be in a band a few years later and I was 12 or 13 or so got a drum set started playing for about a year or so and then 13 or 14 started my first band had a few bands before ultimately getting to a band called mayfield which i was in for about five years from the 2000 to 2005 but like during that time practicing discovering local shows for the first time the first local show i remember going to was show off at some coffee lounge in palis heights Illinois. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is, I've been to some concerts downtown, but never like a local show. So I was like, oh, they can, we can actually play shows in the suburbs or at small places. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. So yeah, show off was like the first concert that I remember seeing at this place. The next one before my band started playing shows was, I believe it was show off again, but it it could be foggy. It was also the plain white tees and a band called SKG. This was like late 99 or so, early 2000, something like that. So yeah, saw these bands. Also in that time frame, we played with Alistair at some skate park in Woodstock, Illinois. You know, met those guys and started playing with their side project, The Conways. So really from there, just, yeah, just got really involved in meeting anyone and everyone that was playing in bands and trying to play shows with them show off at the time i had no idea who they were but i just thought it was so cool that i was going to a concert near my house it was a small venue it wasn't like a huge band or huge venue and and i realized oh you know if i had a band i could do a show like this that would be awesome to do so that's one of the first local show experiences i remember going to and then eventually my band got a a show at this coffee house I can't remember who we play with. It was just some other local bands, but we also were able to play with Alistair at like a skate park in Woodstock, Illinois. This was late 99 or so. And then, you know, became friends with Tim and ultimately... Yeah, ultimately played a couple of shows with them. And then, you know, from there, it kind of 
morphed into all right bigger venues eventually we got to play fireside bowl which is the best venue in the world to mm. me and from there we jumped to the metro in chicago and i don't know how this happened it was a few years later we got invited to play the house of blues with bowling for soup in the junior varsity oh cool um, yeah so this is 2000 to 2005 and I played drums for that band. And yeah, that was my fast-paced local scene, how I found out about shows, wanted to play shows, and just kind of got our foot in the door to play these venues. Um, Red, man. But, and you mentioned two classic venues, Fireside Bull and the Metro in Chicago. They're both there. So I don't, I, I haven't heard of a show going out at the Fireside in a long time. But if you drive down near it, you know, the bowling pin is still there. Fireside Bowl is still there. The last I heard years ago, they were doing bowling which was cool. I, I wish I went and did it, but I don't know if it's defunct now or not. Okay, um, cool. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. sure if they were no longer having concerts there. I thought maybe somebody had bought it out and turned it into a different type of business, but I wasn't sure. Cause I know Alistair, they did that redux of somewhere down on Fullerton and I'm pretty sure they did the new video in the building that was Fireside Bowl, right? Okay. Nice. Yeah. yeah that's it's, cool. It's been, yeah, been a long time, but that was my early teens through my early 20s going to fireside shows and seeing every band there before they blew up and yeah it was just the coolest venue yeah so many great bands from chicago too i forget about show off i remember seeing their music video for the single that they had and i just really liked that single i thought it was a lot of fun and they were a lot of fun and they were definitely spawned from green day they were a product of green day happening but it was a few years later and it wasn't until several years later that I realized John Feldman did that record. And they were one of the first bands that he actually did A&R for and got signed. So that's kind of a cool story. And I talked to Chris, their singer, a lot on Facebook. Super nice guy. Cool, man. So you were in a band called Mayfield for five years. And you said you guys were a band from 2000 to 2005. I'm assuming you guys put out records and things like how many records did you guys end up putting out? Yeah, so we did one EP and one full length. First EP was in 2002. Full length was in 2004. Did some demos and stuff before the first EP. And you mentioned Sean Feldman with Show Off. That leads me to one of our favorite bands. Our favorite local bands was Mest. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd heard about them like, oh, they're from right down the road. So we were in Palos Park. They were in Blue Island. It was, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes away, not even. So we were like, oh, you know, if they can do it, you know, we can do it. We found out where they recorded their first full length. I I think it's Mo Fodi's Mo Problems or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Some crazy cover. And yeah, so we found out it was this place called Star Tracks in Crestwood, Illinois. And we found the producer, Bernie Mack. We contacted them and said, hey, we'd love to book some studio time and with Bernie. And we know you did mess and everything and we'd love to do it. He took us in and you know he helped us record our first actual recording. It was about six songs. And then you know we learned a lot from that process. And then from there, we went back and redid everything and got our first EP release. Awesome. Did you release it through a label or anything or was it just self-independent released? So kind of. I was working with a guy that has started a label and we kind of put it together, put it out ourselves, but with him, with his guidance. So it was like we had the label's name, but like we were really doing everything ourselves, you know, funding the recording, funding the pressing, funding the promotion, stuff like that. At the time, I had no idea what I was doing. Just kind of, you just learn as you go and, you know, 
make mistakes and try better for next time. But yeah, that first CD that we did was so cool because we ordered them from Canada. They got shipped down to us. And it was like, oh, wow, we made an actual CD. Like this was nothing anyone that I knew at school had ever done. Of course, I've seen, you know, local bands have CDs and stuff, but I just wanted to get to be able to put out a CD and find out how that all worked. And yeah, one way or another, we did it. Absolutely. The process of it, right? Because you guys went to an actual studio, you worked with an actual legit producer who had made a name for himself at that point recording Mest. And I'm sure that's what ultimately got Mest noticed by Feldman. And then they eventually signed to Maverick. So that was probably a pretty exciting time. How old were you around that time when you guys did that first EP? First EP, let's say 16 or 17. Okay. And that yeah, was 2001? Yeah, we still 2002. So yeah, we recorded our first songs in 2001 with that producer and then went back a year later and redid the whole thing. Yeah, we were still in high school when we did that. And we were, I mean, we were pretty cool because no one else was doing this kind of stuff in my area. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. From there, cool. just kind of learned. We just wanted to put out a CD. And mm -hmm. we, I don't know how we figured it out, but we got someone to do the artwork. This guy named Jason Link, he's from Chicago. He works for, he's the art director for Epitaph Records now. He also did Victory Records stuff for years. I remember talking to him when he worked at Victory. Yeah. Yeah. Jason's a really great dude. And he was so nice to our band. I mean, thinking back on it, I didn't realize how many people he knew at that time or how many projects he did, but he always helped us out whenever we needed something. So yeah, that That's was great. Cool. Yeah, Jason's a good dude. And he's a legend in that realm. He's been doing art for labels and working for labels about that long, probably over 20 years now, which is insane. Yeah. yeah. And he's working for Epitaph now, right? Right. Yeah. I loved his last campaign he did with Bad Religion. The artwork for that new record that came out last year is just so cool. I like all the lyric videos that he does too. He's really good at those. Yeah. Well, cool. So 2001 into 2002, that was prime time for pop punk music. And oh, yeah. I'm sure you remember the drive through records, that entire catalog and scene, along with, of course, Blink-182 was exploding and they put out Take Off Your Pants and Jacket in 2001 and did a bunch of tours, big tours in 2002. Was it your hope to get signed to a label like drive through or maybe even Fueled by Ramen? They were getting more popular around that time. I mean, absolutely. Every band wanted to be signed to drive through. Yeah. You know, we were sending our stuff to a lot of labels. Ones I remember, Negative Progression, Lobster Records, Victory Records, drive through I don't think we ever sent anything to Feel by Ramen. I think I was, I was kind of late in the game with them as far as when it came time to send demos. I don't think I really heard about Feel by Ramen until 2001, maybe middle of 2002. Basically, when I heard about Punchline is okay. when I heard about Feel by Ramen. Yeah. And Punchline, fantastic Chicago band. You've put out some of their records on vinyl, right? Through TDR? Yeah. So yeah, when I played in my band, where it all started with, with Punchline was it was a Super Bowl Sunday show in 2003, I believe January 26th. Yeah, we played at a, a tiny venue in Rockford called the Divine Cup. And there was a local band called Mark with a C on that show. <laughs> That's a nice little nod to Empire Records. Yeah, we opened, Punchline played, and a little band called Fall Out Boy headlined. Yeah. Yeah, and there was, I swear to you, there was four people there, not including the band people. So wow. it was a surreal experience. So met Fall Out Boy and Punchline for the first time that night. You know, obviously still talk to the Punchline guys and, and do stuff with them to this day. You know, we kept in touch with Fall Boy for as long as we could at some point, you know, they blew up and it was like, it was hard to, 
hard to get access to them kind of thing. But yeah, they, they just went into the stratosphere, right? Yeah, they were, I mean, both fans, they, both bands were awesome to my band at the time, letting us uh, kind of open up for them. I was able to text with them and just kind of ask questions and, and hang out with them at shows and stuff. So yeah, I mean, they helped, uh, whether they know it or not, with getting my label off the ground and trying to do different things. When did you become interested in starting a record label yourself? Well, I mean, I think I kind of alluded to it earlier where we were doing it, making that first CD and making flyers and going to shows and passing them out. And this is like, you know, the internet was the round, but it was the biggest thing was passing out either sampler cassettes, sampler CDs, flyers. That was pretty much how you promoted your band and music. You know, yeah. mp3.com was around and stuff. I don't think we ever put our, our stuff up there. Pure Volume was probably the first site that we did. But yeah, I mean, while we were doing that, figuring out how to make the CD, promoting our stuff, I didn't realize it then, but like we were the record label. We were doing everything that we could. And I guess what? we thought record labels did at that time. Yeah, you guys were becoming self-sufficient, like a lot of bands were being told to do around that time, right? Because I was in a band around the exact same time period from 2000 to 2004. And that was what people were telling us. Labels just want a band that's self-sufficient. So the more you can do yourself, the better you're going to be. And the more attractive you're going to be to these independent labels that don't have to work too hard to get you out there. And so our goal was just to, like you said, flyer shows, sell CDs, play shows and tour. So we were just yeah. touring as much as we could. Yeah, for sure. That's what we did. I remember booking our first East Coast tour. I, I always answered emails and sent them during my accounting class at work because that's when I got access to a computer, uh, not work, at, at school. Mm -hmm. So I had access to a computer and instead of listening to the teacher, I'd be emailing, searching venues and stuff to contact. So like right there is another example of I've helped book tours from other bands, but when I first started with with my band, I, again, had no idea what I was doing and just jumped in feed first and, and kind of figured things out. Yeah. What did you use to book? Did you use book your own fucking life? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One show that we got through that. I mean, I'll never forget it. You know, at the time I was like, what did we get ourselves into? But it was all part of the learning experience. We found a, a show in Oklahoma City. It was a basement show at like a vegan house. And we get there and people are super nice. It was incredible, but it wasn't anything like we thought it was going to be because it was just like people hanging out at a house, eating food that I had never heard of. I didn't oh. know what vegans were or any of that. So it was a basement yeah. show in Oklahoma City? Yeah, basement show in Oklahoma City. And it was just like with a new group of people that I had never heard of or experienced with um, a vegan house or something. Played in the basement. It was probably, you know, 110 degrees down there, which mm -hmm. was crazy. And yeah, just nothing what we expected. The house was disgusting. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember plenty of shows like that. It sounds like a venue. They've named it something and then you show up and it's a frat house and you're playing in the basement and yep. the whole surrounding area you're playing on the floor and it's covered in urine and vomit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Those we are great shows. We, Those are usually oh, a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at the time it was it was crazy. Like I would never do it again at this point in my life cuz I want to stay in a a nice place if I'm traveling, but I mean, we slept everywhere and anywhere and it was it was pretty <laughs> pretty rad and, and stuff but um yeah yeah all part of the learning experience exactly yeah there's certain times of my life now where it's almost like i'm grateful for experiencing a little bit of discomfort when i was young just giving me really good perspective 
And you talk to anybody that's like you and I, especially around that time period where there was this network of underground bands that you could connect with. And then hopefully you'd book a show with them in their hometown and then vice versa. And you try to help each other out. And you just hope that at least one person had a made up basement where the parents would allow you to come stay. And they might even let you do your laundry and eat breakfast and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah such a blast, you know, so much fun. And it was very DIY. And that probably lends itself to why you do what you do now with your label. Sure, you get a thrill out of being in charge of your record label, being creative, putting out these releases, doing it the way you want to, collaborating with a lot of different people and a lot of different creative types. When did TDR Records, when did it officially start? So when when did you know... I guess what I'm asking, because you were kind of doing it for your band, right? You were self-releasing, independent releasing your first few releases or your first couple of releases. So when did you know it was something that you wanted to pursue beyond your own creative outlet? Yeah, so it was, I would say 2000, late 2004, early 2005, we officially started TDR Records. And our first release was a uh, split seven inch by Punchline and Over It. Rad. Yeah, I mean, at the time, you know, Punchline was signed to Feel by Ramen. Feel by Ramen was not as big as today, but huge then. It was basically the new drive-through conglomerate. And again, because we met them years before, kept in touch. They were all about doing a seven inch because they had never done vinyl before. And same with the Over It guys. You know, I, I met them at the Fireside Bowl in Chicago in August of 2000. And, you know, fell in love with their band. We were the only people there. And yeah, kept in touch with them. And, and they were stoked to do the, the release as well. They were friends of Punchline. So just had all these things happening. Is TDR, is it kind of like a one-man operation? I can see all of the packaging stuff that you have behind you. Is it you? Uh, so, I mean, officially, yeah, it's me. But my wife has been helping out as far as giving her opinion, what she thinks is a good idea, bad idea kind of thing. She's helped me with like fulfillment stuff where we have so many, so many packages to ship out. And she's like, the way you're doing it, like I, before I would do one package, one person, wrap it up and make the shipping label all in a row. And Mm -hmm. she's a a process improvement person at her work. And she's like, I think there's a better way we can do this. So she's helped me. Yeah. Organize spreadsheets as far as splitting things up. It's like, all right, we need this many of this one, this many of that one go ahead and just package them all up and then we'll make it much faster than what I'm doing. So yeah, she's, she's awesome with that. But yeah, as far as like the day-to-day label stuff, I mean, that's just me, but I'll ask her her opinion pretty much on everything. Cool. Yeah. And it's nice to be able to spitball ideas back and forth with her. And like you said, she has a skill set that really lends itself to your operation and just streamlining things and making things a little bit more effective and efficient. So that's great. I like that. That's cool. Yeah. I don't know if you saw Pamela when she came in earlier. She definitely helps me with that stuff as well. I can always springboard things off of her. And it's just nice to get another perspective from somebody who cares. You were talking about over it. So over it, I became really good friends with those dudes. Great guys, Peter and Nick. I haven't talked to them in a while. It's been probably a year or so since I last spoke with Peter and it was online. And I think he's working with Cameron Webb now. Is he recording? I know he helped with the last Alkaline Trio record. Yeah. So I've I've just kind of kept in touch with following their, their online stuff and no comments. Hey, what's up here and there. But yeah, not too much with that. I mean, I, I still listen to over it and all their records, you know. Um, same, to this man. Day. Yeah. Yeah. 
Silver Strand and Step Outside Yourself. I mean, even Timing is Everything. Those are just pivotal records for me. I have many fond memories listening to those guys. We were fortunate enough. We played a lot of shows with them. My first band, we were on Warp Tour nice. and we were, on, we were on the same stages over it. We okay. got to know those guys really, really well. Was that 2004? It was actually 2002. It was 02. Okay. Yeah, we were on a tiny little state. Well, I'm sorry. No, I'm conflating the years because it was actually 2003 that we played on the same small stages over it and there was a bunch of great bands that year on that same stage we were on the stage with park and under oath was on a few dates and they actually broke up on that tour as well so there was some drama that went down there band called bottom line don't look down played one day on that stage it was fun times but we got to know the over it guys very well that summer and they stayed at my house quite a bit. They would come through on tour and then they'd come stay with me at my parents' house. Nice. Good dudes, for sure. A lot of fun with them. Yeah, we never got to play with them, but I probably, I went to every single one of their shows if they were anywhere close to Chicago. We'd drive out and go see them and, and hang out with them. So yeah, they you were said, awesome guys. You said you met them in 2007? 2000. We saw them play at the Fireside Bowl and there was nobody nobody at the show and we hung out with them afterwards and they were touring and what I remember is this small gray van and kind of living in it and that was another I would say point in my life where I was like what they're doing is what I want to do this is when the ready series just came out and yeah they were just super cool to us and we saw their van that they were living in and touring in and it's like I want to do that so yeah 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 and they were from North Virginia is that right Yes, Alexandria. Alexandria, which, that's yeah. right, yeah. And then they eventually made their way out to the West Coast. Yes. That first release that they had, was that on Negative Progression? Yeah, so they did their EP with the ducks on it. I think it's just self-titled EP. And then the Ready series, full length, was with them too. And then from there, went to Lobster. And Lobster put out a ton of great releases around there, around the 2001, 2002 mark. I was a massive Yellow Card fan, especially that first record on Lobster, one for the kids. That was just a very genre-defining record for me. It was that and Rufio, perhaps, I suppose. Those were the records of the year for me, that 2001, 2002. Nice. That was just a fun time. That was exciting. A lot of new bands were being formed around that time, and I think they were a product of a lot of the skate punk from the late 90s to mid to late 90s. So you could kind of hear those elements in there, but they were also influenced by bands like Jimmy Eat World and the Get Up Kids. So you had that kind of melting pot of the skate punk, but also those emo tendencies from the Midwest and that's probably what created and defined a lot of pop punk around that time. But I wanted to go back to TDR because yeah. this is your record label. How have things shifted? Because you talked about how you started it in the very early 2000s and then really started picking up steam in the mid 2000s. What's it been like the transition from then to now? Because I'm sure there's been a, a lot of transitional periods from 2005 to even t- 2020. What's that been like? Sure. So, I mean, really the first couple things I think of are what we release music on and how we do it. When we first started the label, it was like getting our stuff on iTunes. That's impossible. Only, only major labels can do that. So we didn't, I don't think we did digital until maybe 2006, 2007, something mm-hmm. like that. So we were only pressing CDs and people were still buying CDs, which was cool. And then, like I said, we dipped our toe into the vinyl markets. And again, I had no idea what I was doing. If I can go back and do that seven inch again, I would have done it so many different ways because we did 
2000 copies, you know, in hindsight, that's, that would be insane unless you were a, a massive, massive band. But I mean, through just, you know, the, the work and the grind, we're down to like, you know, I don't know, maybe 30 copies or so that I have left. So wow. again, all part of the experience, but compared to then versus now is what we release it, how we release it. But the one thing that hasn't changed, I would say, is the relationships with the band members themselves, their fans, how we interact with people. There's way more ways to interact with people now, as, as you know. But it's just all about building those relationships and connections and keeping in touch with people and not just talking to them when you have something that you want to sell them. Just interacting with them as, as people and human beings. And I think early on, I was more of, all right, we got to get it out to every single person, anybody and everybody. And, you know, over the last, I don't know, eight or so years, I've been focused more on, all right, you know, I've I've noticed this person's ordered a couple of things from us before, you know, I'm going to follow them on Twitter or something and see what they're all about and just kind of do, you know, little interactions here and there. And, you know, again, build those relationships. And so when it comes time to, we got something new, it's like, you know, Hey, they know me, they know my bands, they're willing to check it out, you know, kind of like I would used to do with, uh, with my favorite bands where if they have a record, I don't need to hear anything. I'm just going to buy it because, you know, I, I believe in those guys and stuff like that. So you're bought in. Yes. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, like these days, really the only thing that we do now is final and digital. So cool. compared to before, yeah, it's still releasing music, just trying to figure out the best way for people to who want it to hold it they'll get a copy and then also making it available everywhere to stream yeah and you have to give a damn too right it sounds like you actually care not only about the music that you're releasing but the relationships that you're cultivating with some of these people and the band members and the people that are a true fan and really enjoy music and enjoy collecting music so they say if you want to have a sustainable business actually give a damn about your customers care about them and it sounds like you do and it also sounds like you guys have a work ethic as well you yourself and the people who have helped you along the way. Punchline is a band that has, I think, cultivated a relationship with their fans, but also they just work really, really hard. I remember them working really hard even back in the early 2000s, right as they got signed to Field by Ramen. I remember seeing them at shows where they'd open for Lesson Jake and they'd be walking the line selling the Rewind EP. And I just thought that was so cool. The band that they got signed to this label, and it seemed like that label and that band were just starting to blow up at the exact same time. But you still saw the humility and the DIY ethos and going literally person to person and starting a conversation and putting themselves out there. And I still think they do that. I think they do a good job of that. And they've really grown with their fans. And I love those dudes, Steve and Chris, super humble, super awesome dudes. What's it been like watching their career trajectory? So, I mean, those guys, since I met them, and, and talk with them, hung out with them and everything. I don't think they've changed. Their music has changed. I think, you know, they're one of the bands that I told Chris this when uh, Just Say Yes came out. It's like, they've been the same dudes, no matter what, how big in air quotes they are mm-hmm. um, or how popular they are. They're the same guys. But when, after that, that third full length Just Say Yes came out, I told them like, dude, you guys you guys are like, they're one of my favorite bands because they do something different every time. It's like, I compare it to Green Day where every record sounds completely different. Mm -hmm. And I think Punchline has done that throughout their career where they've gone from the Rewind EP all the way up to Lion now. And Mm -hmm. 
seeing that transition over, you know, it's, it's been awesome. Again, they've been the same guys, whether they started their own record label and put out just CS or they had a campaign to get so nice to meet you. Number one on the iTunes charge, which was insane. Yeah. I remember that. Uh, and then even when they, they kind of took a break in the, the mid 2010s before thrilled came out, you know, when they sent me what they've been working on, it was like, Oh my, this is completely different way this like way out of left field but at the same time it sounded like punchline and you know that's that's what they are they're they're true to themselves and you know i'm sure i took some of that early on because i remember seeing the same thing them going out and talking to everybody selling cds at shows talking to whoever didn't matter what it was taking pictures and everything and you know i'm not as personable as them in in person i'm more more shy introverted uh like you mentioned so i'm i'm good with the behind the scenes stuff, getting everything organized and making a plan. And I've been fortunate enough to be surrounded by bands and guys that they're like, Hey, if you just tell me what to do kind of thing, or if, if you can do this, we can do that. And we just we work as a team, work as a family. And yeah, it's like you mentioned, I do give a damn about everything that we do. Cause it's like, if I don't like every single song on a record, I'm, I don't want to do it. Cause I listen to albums and all those the singles and all those guys that I've been working with punchline, barely blind, the promise hero, the Elbert mantra. I've known those guys for about 10, 15 years plus. So mm-hmm. we've just, you know, built this awesome family and closeness together. A lot of them stood up at my wedding. Steve actually from punchline actually officiated our wedding. Oh, cool. Usher kind of thing. So, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool to be friends with people for that long and still everyone's the same, no matter what they're doing in their lives at, at this point. That's awesome, man. And you guys are venturing into new products too, right? I saw that you guys have kind of dabbled in, you release some coffee and you sell some mugs on your site. What made you decide to want to do that? Are you just a coffee aficionado and you just wanted to get involved? Yeah. So, I mean, I've drinking coffee for a long time. It wasn't until a few years ago, I took a trip out to Oregon to visit my family, my aunt and uncle. And my aunt, when we were there, she's like, do you want a coffee? And I said, yeah, sure. What do you got? And she's like, well, you know, here, I'll, I'll grind the beans and pour this over. And I was like, what? What is what is that? So she introduced me to pour over for the first time. And then I, that's all I've been drinking ever since. So from there, it's like, you know, I've always wanted to do some kind of coffee thing with the label because people like coffee, people like tea. Yeah. Um, and again, I made a mug that I would want to drink out of. And whether we sell a hundred or we sell 10, you know, I just wanted to make it because I wanted to use it every day. Yeah. Um, and same thing with the beans, you know, it's like I, I can get as little or as many of those as, as we need, but it's just some, something there for people who like the label, like coffee, want to do something a little different. So that's awesome. Have you heard of Rootless Coffee? Jono from the Swellers, his company? No, no, he has oh. something come on. Cool. I'll have to send you some of their stuff. They're relatively new, but I interviewed him, I guess a few months ago, and he's onboarded with some friends of his for that company. And he does all the creative marketing type stuff. And I think it's fascinating, the coffee culture and the band culture. There is a cross connection there. And I think it has something to do with the creative outlet that calls for stimulants. (laughs) (laughs) I'm drinking caffeine right now. I'm heavily addicted to caffeine. It's like my Achilles heel. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love coffee as well. I'm pour over 
that was definitely a bit of a game changer when you kind of jump into the rabbit hole that is really taking the time to cultivate a ritual in the morning when you're having your coffee. My partner, she has a fancy setup and everything too. And I got her a really nice kettle that's temperature controlled. And it's kind of like craft beer. You can really go down the rabbit hole. But it's oh, yeah. kind of fun at the same time. You know, there's a lot of different kinds and a lot of different beans and a lot of different roasts. And I don't know. I just I like that there's a bit of a parallel there as well. But are you guys going to be releasing more coffee in the future? So we are doing, I mentioned earlier, we have a new release coming out. We're going to announce it in the next couple of weeks or so. Right. Yeah, it'll be there'll be a, a, a bag of beans uh, available with that too. Cool, dude. That's awesome. But otherwise, I mean, it's it's more just like again, small batches for people who are interested and in, and in going one step further than buying a record. And just want to you know drink some stuff. But yeah, again, I, I everything that we've put out or make, it's like I want to wear it. I want to do it. It's not I'm going to follow a trend or anything. And I think I think people see that because you're scratching your own itch so to speak. Yeah. You know, for me, at least, you know, I do the label. It's not my full-time job. You know, I have a career outside the label, which allows me to do whatever I want to and what I love with the music, whether it's final t-shirts, coffee mugs, coffee beans, stuff like that. So yeah. Um, yeah. That's rad. That's awesome. The passion project that you can do because you have this other career that might help offset that a little bit. I'm the same way. I'm doing this podcast as a labor of love just because I played in bands and I really love this type of music. It's a good opportunity for me to talk to people and meet new people and reconnect with old friends and things like that. So I love that. And I definitely relate to that. I just have two more questions and they're regarding two artists that you've released vinyl for. The first one is The Promised Hero. Mm-hmm. which Bobby, that's his name, the singer, right? Yes. He's been doing it for forever. I remember seeing the Promise Hero name all over the place, even back when I was in bands from 2000 until about 2010. And then there was a middle period there where I wasn't really in a band, but I remember seeing that name all over the place. He seems like another ubiquitous guy that just really works really hard. And he's done a lot of things himself and he's been really self-sufficient, but it makes sense why he's linked up with you. Is the Promise Hero retired now? Is he doing everything under his own name or how does that work? The Promise Hero is still a band or? So, I mean, there. The Promise Hero is not really a band anymore. I mean, he, in hindsight, we released their album Deja Vu back in 2013, but it was really just Bobby. By then, you know, a couple of the guys had helped out like with some of the songwriting and, and ideas and stuff. But otherwise, since Deja Vu, everything that The Promise Hero or Bobby has done has just been Bobby. He's another guy like when I met him. So th- th- it's kind of foggy as far as how we met and when we first started talking, but it was, yeah, I met him in 2006 or 2007. He was passing out flyers at a, a Spitalfield Valencia over it punchline tour. And I think I found this out later because I don't remember it at all. I think Boys Like Girls opened that tour, which is mind blowing for how big oh, they cool. got after that. But uh, yeah, Bobby, yeah, big Bobby, package. yeah, I'm remembering there might have been, I don't know, 100, 150 people there or something like that, which is crazy. Wow. So it was at a venue in Toledo. Bobby was passing out flyers. One of my friends had gotten one. So I had a Promise Hero flyer. Whether I interacted with him or not, I can't remember. But I got a message from him on MySpace, probably May or June of 2007. And he's like, hey, this mm-hmm. is Bobby, Promise Hero. We just recorded some songs with Chris Connolly from Saves a Day. Love to send you the, the demo and everything. So they sent me some songs and you know, I, I loved it. I, I put out their 
their first EP, which was just self-titled EP. And then we didn't use the songs that they recorded with Chris, but they did re-record them uh, and reimagine them for uh, Wait for the Sun. So, And you released that? Yes. Yeah. So okay. yeah, Wait for the Sun came out in 2008 and then we did another EP and, and full length uh, with him under the Promise Hero in 2010, 2013. But ever since then, yeah, Bobby's been just Bobby. But he, he knows he knows everybody and everyone knows Bobby. So yeah, he's been all over the place. He really put in the grind hours because I'm sure he's toured a ton. I know the Promise Hero toured a ton. I remember seeing them all over the place and on flyers and things when we were on tour. The other band I wanted to, to ask you about was the prize fight. Oh yeah. So this is this is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, just because of that connection, that loose connection that we have. I told you that my first band, we went on tour with the prize fight. And it was one of the last tours that we did in 2004. It was the end of the summer. I'm pretty sure it was the whole month of August and then maybe even a show or two in September. But we just had so much fun with those guys. We stayed with Johnny at his house because it was kind of an East Coast tour. And I hadn't heard that name in a while. And I saw that you had released one of their EPs. And can you just speak to that? Like, how did you come into contact with those dudes? Yeah. So prize fight, love those guys. I uh, still kind of talk and interact with Nick from the band Rhino here and there. Don't know where Johnny is. He's seems to be internetless, which I envy to a certain degree. So yeah, I was looking for him the other day. Yeah. That he's nowhere to be found. So okay. um, yeah, uh, those guys, uh, we started talking in probably the summer of 2004. Yeah, summer 2005. But I might have seen them in the summer of 2004 because I drove out to Philadelphia to see a band called The Spotlight Mm -hmm. uh, play. And they were playing with Valencia in the prize fight. Again, at the time, I had no idea who these bands were. I wonder if we played that show. It it was at some like outside garage warehouse or something. Uh Yeah, I just remember it was crazy. Because I hadn't slept, I drove all night to to get there, and then we saw the show, hung out for a little nice. bit, and then just drove home. So after the fact, found out the prize fight was there. It's like, oh, this band's pretty cool. And then I don't know, they released like a a demo or two two song demo on Pure Volume mm-hmm. sometime in early or mid two thousand five, and I think it was this apartment. And I hate to say I told you so, mm-hmm. and heard those. I was looking to sign a, a band. So this is shortly after we released the punchline over it split. I wanted to have an actual band under TDR because my band was defunct at that time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, messaged them, started talking to them and uh, just the stars aligned. They were like, we want to release an EP. They're like, it's totally different from our old stuff. And I wasn't familiar with their old stuff. I'd only heard this. And I was like, this is incredible. So yeah, we yeah. talked and we contacted Paul Levitt. And because we'd heard about them from the all-time low guys. And this is before Paul blew up as a mm-hmm. recorder producer. And yeah, to DP recorded it in the fall of 2005. And we got it out in the March of 2006. They were like our unstoppable machine for a while, just touring everywhere, playing shows everywhere. Still love that band and listen to them to this day. That's awesome. Love that band. A lot of talent in that one band. They were just a lot of fun live, and we had such a blast on tour with those guys. I remember listening to records in their van and staying with Johnny at his parents' house and sleeping in their basement. And I remember we watched the Urethra Chronicles, the first one from Blink, while we were there. Just good times. Great band. The Prize Fight, really unique band. I love that Johnny, he used 
horns. I think he played the trombone live. But I remember they were connected to the starting line because they all grew up in the same town together. And Ryan went on to play with Kenny, which is kind of a cool connection. Dude, this has been fun. This has been an adventure. I think we made it through. How can people learn more about TDR Records? Where should they go? I know you've got a good presence on social media and stuff. Sure, yeah. I mean, Instagram... Twitter is the best way to interact with me. Our bands, Yellowbird Mantra. And I'll say it, I mean, we you mentioned Bobby Vaughn. We're releasing his EP in the next few weeks with some new songs. He did release it via Kickstarter not too long ago, but we're we're putting it out on final. We're doing the the works with it. So I'm really looking forward to that. You know, there's there's more punchline records that we're planning on doing. Hopefully that that all happens this year. But really, yeah, just hit me up on on Instagram or Twitter. It's TDR Records on both of them. And yeah, I'd love to send you something to uh, to listen to. Rad, excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me today, Mike. I appreciate it. It was fun. I definitely will be on the lookout for all things TDR Records related. Yeah, thanks again, man. Kyle, and thank you for having me. This was this was a blast. I've never done anything like this, so yeah, it's cool. Offline, yeah, I want you to email me your address so I can send you a, a care package. So, you can oh, out. thank you very much, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah I absolutely will. Well, so. cool, dude. Well, have a fantastic rest of your day and weekend, and good luck with your second shot. And we'll keep in touch. Okay. Awesome. Sometimes you gotta disappear, just off in the atmosphere. Step back from everyone. Let your shadow eclipse the sun and make a move while you got the chance and ask your destiny to dance and cut a rug and paste it in the... Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to help the podcast out, if you want to do a massive solid for us here at Having a Blast, if you could just leave us a review, a five-star review would be amazing wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you just want to recommend this podcast to a friend who might enjoy it. All right. Hope you have a wonderful day. Hope you're having a blast listening to your favorite records. I'll talk to you later. <laughs>